0: Turn in your Bibles with me this morning. Our scripture reading will come from the book of Mark, Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, we have been studying this gospel chapter by chapter, verse by verse for over a year now, and we come to this section of text in Mark chapter 15, and we will be reading from verses 1 through 21. Mark chapter 15, verse 1 through 21. 21. This section of text describes the civil trial of the Lord Jesus. There is the religious trial, and it finishes in the very beginning portion of verse 1 of chapter 15, and then we see the civil trial, part 1 and part 3 of the civil trial of Jesus, with part 2, Two, happening between verses 5 and 6. But Mark here focuses on Jesus and Pilate. Mark 15, verse 1. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now, at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested, the man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate asked them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him. Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. This morning, we not, will not only look at this passage, but we will look at the corresponding passages in John chapter 18 and Luke chapter 23. But I want to begin with an article found in the Chicago Tribune in 2014, about a business owner. About a business owner who had confronted another elderly woman. The 55-year-old man was a Caucasian. He was outside of Cook County Courth- Courthouse when he became angry at this 79-year-old African-American woman. And after arguing with her, he spat in the woman's face. He called her Rosa Parks And then he turned and allegedly slapped the silver-haired woman on the left side of her face with an open hand. That was a very bad move. Because that woman happened to be Judge Arnett Hubbard, the first female president of the National Bar Association and Cook County Bar Association. Judge Hubbard was a community icon, has served in, as an election observer both in Haiti and in South Africa and had long been a voice for civil rights and women's issues. Hubbard was appointed to the bench in 1997, re-elected to a six-year term the following year and retained since in two more elections, most recently in 2010, and I'm not sure after that. But that man was arrested by sheriff's deputies charged with four counts of aggravated battery and a hate crime. The Chicago Tribune quoted a local leader and said, quote, people of good common sense and decency, people of good hearts should be outraged by this, unquote. You know, in our world, injustice is something we see in the news and around the world frequently. People are harassed because of racial profiling. People are charged unjustly of crimes they did not commit. People are bought and they're sold into bondage and human trafficking. And then there are those who are taken advantage of by those who are in power. Sometimes it is in the workplace, which is a current day debate. In the mid-1800s, if you worked as a seaman in Great Britain, it was a very dangerous job. Shady ship owners would try to maximize their profits, and what they would do is that they would take their ships, and they would overload their ships to maximize profits. And these ships often sank in bad weather, allowing the ship owners to make an even greater profit because they would then collect on their overinsured ships. In the year 1873 to 1874, along the coastline of the UK, there were over 400 ships that sank and over 500 people who died. The problem of overloading these ships and the poor repairs that were made to these ships that became so dangerous, these ships became known as coffin ships. Sailors would refuse to board these coffin ships because they knew that it was a coffin to them and Their penalty was imprisonment for desertion. In fact, between 1870 and 1872, over 1,600 sailors were incarcerated for this, quote-unquote, crime. Until 1868 a young British politician whose name was Samuel Plimsoll. He applied his biblical faith to this situation of injustice and he announced that he would, quote, do all in his power to put an end to the unseaworthy ships owned by the greedy and the unscrupulous. And as a member of the House of Commons, he attempted to pass law, legal er, legal edicts, but the Ship-owning politicians, some of the ship owners rejected the law until one day there was a massive storm. There was a massive storm in which 23 ships and 70 seamen, 6 rescuers, all went down and died. Then it became a public attention spectacle because of the injustice of overloading. And finally, the Parliament passed in 1875 the Merchant Shipping Act, and it marked the beginning of the end for what was known as the coffin ships. And from then on, even if you look today, commercial shipping vessels will have on the side, painted on the side of that ship, what is known as the Plimsoll mark or the Plimsoll load line. And it is these marks on the side of the ship in which the ship, would indicate, depending upon the size, the width, capacity, etc., how much it could be safely loaded and it would descend into the water in order for practices that were safe for its workers. And it saved thousands of lives of seamen who were caught up in that unjust situation, made to work, risking their lives. And he put a stop to that. Today, the battle over injustices over workplace safety, the battle over injustices for various things are continuing on. And it is not something that is going to likely stop. But maybe in your past, you've been the one who has suffered unjustly. Maybe you have been the one who have been abused or taken advantage of, misjudged, profiled, or even lost someone that you love. There is at least one person who knows what that is like more personally, more severely than we will ever know or experience. And that is God. God knows. Jesus knows. Because Christianity is about a father who loses his only son to what? being falsely accused, sentenced without just cause, mercilessly whipped and beaten, publicly shamed, tortured, murdered in the most violent way known to man at that time. God sent his son for that purpose. God knows what it is like to lose a child. Jesus knows what it is like to be unjustly treated, to suffer for what others have done. And that is is what we see in today's passage. Today's text is focused on the civil trial of Jesus, and it will be a travesty of justice. To give you some context as to where we are at in this particular passage today, Jesus, in the night in which he was going to go to the cross the next day, was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane by a mob of soldiers, temple guards, religious leaders, anywhere from 250 to some thousand people who came and arrested him. And it began a series of trials and interrogations. He had a religious trial, he had a civil trial, each having three parts. In the religious trial, he had the interrogation, he had the arraignment, and then he had the sentencing. And the civil trial also had three parts as well. When Jesus was arrested, John 18 tells us that they took him first to Annas' house. Annas was the former high priest, even though he kept his title. Annas was the former high priest, and there he is interrogated by Annas. At the same time, Annas' son-in-law is convening just across the courtyard the Sanhedrin for the second part of the trial. Annas does not find anything that he can charge Jesus with. He is asking Jesus, and really he should be asking any witnesses for the charges that Jesus has been arrested on, but he is unable to find any such charges. So that interrogation phase, he should have let him go if he were just, but he did not. He sent him over to Caiaphas' house just across the courtyard for phase two of the religious trial, the arraignment. The Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, who is the current reigning high priest, attempts then to find witnesses who will corroborate some type of charge against Jesus. The witnesses that they find are inconsistent, and they are contradictory among their own testimonies. And the acting high priest, Caiaphas, at that time, he has had enough. And in Mark 14, verse 61, he says to Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? To which Jesus says, I am. For the high priest and the Sanhedrin, that is tantamount to blasphemy. They condemn him as con- deserving of death. And that is that. They had had enough. Now while they were having this trial, this second portion of the trial, with Jesus at Caiaphas' house, outside in the courtyard, as these homes were built in sort of a rectangular shape, the inside in the courtyard, there is the apostle Peter along with John. He is warming himself by the fire, and then he is confronted by a servant girl who identifies him as one who followed Jesus. She says it loud enough for the crowd to hear, and Peter denies that. Then a couple of others later on, along with the girl, they come and identify Peter once again, and he vehemently denies that. And then later on, after an hour or two, Peter is once again confronted by a crowd of people saying, you're a Galilean too. And vehemently, Peter denies Jesus, calling a curse upon himself if he is lying adamantly and formally denying the Lord Jesus in a common Jewish legal phrase. And as he is doing, the cock crows. And Peter sees Jesus as they are escorting him out of that second phase of the trial and he remembers the words of Jesus that he would deny him three times when he hears the cock crows. Such a sad incident brings Peter humbly to his own sinfulness. This would be around 3 a.m., That would be around this end of the second phase of the religious trial, the arraignment. Now if they had conducted the trial properly, according to the Jewish law, The Sanhedrin themselves could not bring charges. They could only adjudicate the cases that were brought from an outside party. And if the Sanhedrin did bring charges, which they did, the entire council would then be disqualified from judging that particular case. And they had to find at least two credible witnesses in order to establish guilt. And those two credible witnesses had to give precise, consistent testimony as to the date, the time, the location of whatever event that it was under question. And then the accused, whom Jesus was, was entitled to a public trial, a public defense, including the right to call witnesses and present evidence. And if it was a sentence that required execution, there was to be a full day of fasting between the sentence and the execution so that there would be no hasty execution none of these were followed in the case of Jesus. The Sanhedrin had enough of Jesus, and they were simply trying to find a way by which they could sentence Jesus, convict him, and they found that by accusing him of blasphemy, and fast-tracked this mock trial to the civil courts. But, they wanted to at least try to look as if they were following the law. So, after the interrogation before Annas, after the arraignment before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, they get a couple of hours of sleep in order to simply look like they were following the law, and they held then a third daytime convening trial in the wee hours of the morning. And that is where we pick up Mark chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. Immediately held a consultation. Matthew 27.1 records the same thing. Now when morning came, this would have been about 5 a.m. or so, when the sun would begin to rise, all the chief priests and the elders and the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. This would have been the third, the third phase of Jesus' trial, a facade of a daytime trial, just so they could have it during the day, just so they could say that it was in public. This religious trial then closes with that third, third trial, with Sanhedrin being the judge, the jury, and the sentencing all done by the same religious leaders of Israel. Now, they had to have a civil trial, They had to have a civil trial. Why did they have to have a civil trial? The Sanhedrin had pronounced him guilty, but they were powerless to execute Jesus because only Rome had the power to execute someone. Now you say, I remember some times when the Jews seemed to put people to death, like they stoned Stephen in the book of Acts, or maybe the woman who was caught in adultery, they were about to stone her too. Yes, they did. Those were executions by mob. Those were mob executions, grassroots executions, and sometimes, of course, those were just ignored by Rome. They, Rome would turn a blind eye. And Rome had taken away the power for a formal capital punishment or execution from the Jews because, of course, they didn't want the Jews executing anyone who was favorable towards Rome. So... They took that power away. Of course, the Jews didn't like that because, as you recall, in many of the Old Testament teachings, many of the penalties for infractions against the Mosaic Law were the death penalty. So the Jews hated this. They saw it as an intrusion in their ability to practice their own laws. They saw it as an obstacle. But they knew they had to have it, and they knew they couldn't just execute Jesus in public because there were a number of people still that were Believers in Jesus, and if they had done that in public in some formal way, well, that would have been looking for trouble. So the Sanhedrin was in a quandary. They had, to have, they had had their own verdict against Jesus. They believed he had committed blasphemy when actually Jesus was telling the truth. But they couldn't put him to death on their own, and Rome wasn't interested in putting Jesus to death based upon a religious issue. What issue would Rome be interested in? Rome was interested in anyone who would be an insurrectionist, like Barabbas, or anyone who would be against Rome, anyone who talked against paying taxes, that sort of a thing. So when the Jews led Jesus, after that third phase, they led Jesus to Pilate's praetorium. John chapter 18, verse 28 tells us, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. This is the early morning hours. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Now Pilate, his residence in Jerusalem was called the praetorium. It was not only where he stayed, but it was also the judgment hall where he adjudicated cases. He was called to be a judge among the people, and he would adjudicate cases in his hall, in his home. The time, again, was very early at 5.30 in the morning. But the Bible tells us that they did not, the Jewish leaders, did not want to enter into the praetorium. Why? Because, well, they were selective in the laws that they practiced. They didn't want to be defiled by going into a Gentile's home. And then, of course, Passover would come and they would be unable to practice Passover. They would be considered unclean for seven days. Now, why would they be unclean going into a Gentile's home? Well, there was this belief that the Gentiles, according to the Mishnah, disposed of stillborn or aborted babies by throwing them down the drains. And so the Mishnah declared that all Gentile homes are unclean. If you entered a Gentile home, you might touch a dead body, and therefore you would be unclean. And if they're unclean, they're unclean for seven days, they would miss that whole Passover. So they stayed in the courtyard, and they didn't enter into the praetorium. They selectively obeyed whatever laws they thought would be convenient for them, but here they dragged Jesus before Pilate, And here in Luke chapter 23, verse 2, it adds in some of the details as to what happened when they brought Jesus to Pilate in this very first phase of his civil trial. Luke chapter 23, verse 2 says they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man, number one, misleading our nation, number two, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. And number three, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now that would have raised red flags for any Roman not wanting to pay taxes, a person who claims to be the king, perhaps as a competitor to our Caesar. Hefty charges, especially that last one. So in Mark 15, verse 2, it says, back to our passage, Pilate questions him. Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. The chief priests begin to accuse him. And Pilate questions him again, Do you not answer? See how many charges they are bringing against you. And Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. What happens then? Well, in Luke 18, verse 31, Pilate said to them, after questioning Jesus and having this dialogue in which he's shuffling back and forth between Jesus and in the interior and the religious leaders in the exterior, he says to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. Now, Pilate wasn't known to be a man with a strong backbone. He wasn't one who was a strong, strong political figure. He was politically motivated. He was politically manipulated as well. So that little phrase where he says in John 18, you take him and you judge him according to your own laws sort of was like a washing of my hands of it. Why don't you guys take care of it? And if you decide to get rid of him, well, Rome will turn a blind eye. But this wouldn't fly with the Jews. The Jews respond like this. They said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. Notice their response. He's talking about judgment. They don't want him to be judged by Pilate. They want Pilate to sentence Jesus. And they are saying, we want you to sentence him, and we are not permitted to put anyone to death. Not only that, the reason why they say that is in John 18.32. To fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Now, why does John put that little note in there? Well, in John chapter 3, verse 14, it says, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, if the Jews had the right to execute Jesus, the Jews wouldn't be crucifying him. Jews did not crucify people. The way that the Jews put people to death was by stoning. Jesus knew that he would be handed over to Rome. He knew that he would have this crucifixion by the hand of Rome. He knew that the Jews were not going to be the ones who would take matters into their own hands. He knew this was all going to happen in fulfillment of his own word, in fulfillment of prophecy that he would be crucified, not stoned to death. So the Jews were, of course, saying, well, we, we, we don't have the right to put anybody to death. You declare him to be guilty. You sentence him to death. Well, Luke 23, verses 4 and 5 tells us, Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept insisting, saying, he stirs up the people teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. Now that brought an idea to Pilate because here he was stuck between a rock and a hard place in his mind's eye. Here it was Jesus. He finds no guilt in him. The people are crying out that they want him executed. He's in a quandary. And then he says to them, I find no guilt. And they cry out, he's causing trouble all over the place, even up in Galilee. Well, what comes to his mind? is that Who's the one in charge in Galilee? Well, that would be Herod. That would be Herod. It says in verse 6 of Luke 23, when Pilate heard of it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. When he learned he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was also in Jerusalem at that time. This particular section, this Luke 23, verses 6 and following, was the second phase of Jesus' civil trial, And it is found here in between verses 5 and 6. Here in Mark chapter 15, it records Jesus' part 1 and part 3 of Jesus and Pilate in the trial of the civil trial, part 1 and part 3. The second part was for Herod, found in Luke chapter 23. Now Herod was... A one who was in charge over in Galilee. That was his jurisdiction. He was a very immoral man. You might remember that Herod was the son of Herod the Great. He had Herod, this immoral Herod, had uh, taken his half-brother's wife. This Herod was confronted by John the Baptist who said you shouldn't have your brother's wife, it's not right, etc. They didn't like that, so they imprisoned John the Baptist, but that wasn't good enough for Herod's wife. Herod's wife concocted a plan and during Herod's birthday. Herod was drunk, likely, and she concocted this plan. John was beheaded. But when Jesus came on the scene, Herod was very, very tantalized by Jesus, He was afraid of Jesus at one point. In fact, he wanted to put Jesus to death because he thought to himself, maybe this is John the Baptist who was resurrected from the dead. But in this case, in part two of the trial, as Herod was in Jerusalem for the Passover, Pilate in the praetorium sends Jesus over to Herod and it says in Luke 23, verse eight, Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus for he'd wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he, meaning Jesus, answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes, who were always hanging around, they, it says in 2310, were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt, And mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Well, that was phase two of Jesus' civil trial before Herod. Now, Luke 23, 13 to 16 tells us that Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate. And then what happens? Pilate has a conversation with the Jewish leaders. Luke 23:13 Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and he said to them You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion And behold having examined him before you I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him No nor has Herod for he sent him back to us and behold nothing deserving death has been done by him, therefore, I will punish him and release him. You know, here was Pilate. Pilate had found Jesus innocent, and he declares that three times he finds Jesus innocent. He even says, "Herod finds no reason to put him to death. This man hasn't done anything. This wasn't going well for the Jewish leaders. Verse six. Phase three of the civil trial. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had been committing murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Now here's Pilate. He needs to extricate himself from this situation because here... He sees Jesus as an innocent man. He sees Jesus as an innocent man. Herod doesn't see him as a threat either. But the Jewish leaders want him dead. So he says to them, You have a custom. I release for you someone at the Passover. Do you wish that I release for you the king of the Jews? Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Verse 9. For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. And you notice the way that he phrases this. He doesn't phrase it in a neutral way, as if you can choose between Barabbas or the king of the Jews. After all, he had been hailed. He had been hailed by tens of thousands of people just four days earlier. And I believe Pilate very well knew that Jesus was popular among some. Now here, he phrases it this way, and I think that he wants to be out of this situation. He wants the people to say, yes, you know what? He is our king. Yes, we like our king. We want our king freed. But what happens? John 18, verse 40, they cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. And in the earlier passage in Mark chapter 15, it says he was an insurrectionist. He had committed word. This was not just some pickpocket guy. He wasn't somebody who lifted your wallet at the Pike Place Market. This Barabbas was a notorious prisoner. He was a rebel. He was a domestic terrorist whom they wanted released instead of Jesus. Now, how could that be? How, how could they choose, you think to yourself, a felon over Jesus? But truth be told, I think many people would be like these Jews. They would care less if Jesus were the Savior. They would care less whether the Scriptures are true. They would care less whether or not the Word of God spoke what is true. They could care less about what's true. They're not seeking for what's true. They're not seeking for what is right. They are seeking to have a verdict that they want. And that verdict already has come because they've already rejected the Lord Jesus and they wanted him gone. They wanted him dead. So what happens? In Mark fifteen fifteen, it tells us, Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Pilate folded. Why? Not because of what was right, not because of what was true, but because he wanted the favor of the people. He wanted to satisfy the crowd. And in so doing, he created the situation. He committed an egregious injustice against Jesus. He feared man and became a snare for him. When you decide that the favor of people is more important than doing what is right in the sight of God, it is sin. It is called the fear of man. And that happens so very frequently. Sometimes we may not even think clearly about it from referees who may call plays when there is a home team who wants to be booed all the time to parents who give in to their kids' demands all the time. We are so prone to be succumbing to the fear of people because we desire to be liked. The Bible says they scourged Jesus. scourged Jesus, verse 15. One commentator writes, Scourging was a hideously cruel form of punishment. The victim was stripped. He was bound to a post. He was beaten by several torturers in turn. Jewish law set the maximum number of blows at 40, and in practice the Jews gave a maximum of 39 to avoid accidentally exceeding 40 blows. The Romans, however were not bound by such restrictions. The punishment would continue until the torturers were exhausted, the commanding officer decided to stop it, or was often the case the victim died. The whip consisted of a short wooden handle to which several leather thongs, each with jagged pieces of bone or metal attached to the end, were fastened. As a result, the body could be so torn and lacerated that the muscles, bones, veins, or even internal organs were exposed. So horrible was this punishment that Roman citizens were exempt from it. The scourging he endured left Jesus too weak to carry the crosspiece of his cross all the way to the execution site. Pilate hoped that this brutalizing of Jesus short of death would satisfy the bloodthirsty mob, But they would not be satisfied. They wanted Jesus dead. They wanted Jesus dead. Jesus was given an unjust sentence because Pilate wanted to please the people of his day. Then Jesus is shamefully treated. Verse 16, it tells us that the soldiers took him away. They called together their whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, put a crown of thorns on his head. They claimed him as hailing king of the Jews. They kept beating him, spitting on him, kneeling and bowing before him in mockery. The crown of thorns was an imitation of the crown of wreaths worn by Caesar. The Spikes would have impaled into his head, causing blood to come down. The purple robe, well, the purpose was an imitation, I should say. The purpose of the robe, imitation of the purple robe worn by kings. They put a scepter of reeds in his right hand. They mocked him, pretending to kneel before him. Heaping scorn, they would heap ridicule, they would spit on him. Even after Jesus had been bloodied and his back was probably in ribbons of flesh, bruised and a swollen face. As revolting as that is, think of how much more revolting if that happened to Jesus in our day, all for sinners like us. The mocking, the torture, the humiliation, the suffering. You know, Jesus went to the cross to pay a debt that he did not owe because we had a debt that we could never pay, as one said. He was untrustly, unjustly treated, as Jesus says, it says in Hebrews 12, too, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In conclusion, if you've ever been mistreated, you've ever been misjudged, if you've ever suffered because of injustice, Jesus knows. He knows. God knows what it is like. In a 2014 testimony about his experience with debilitating disease, the provost of Wheaton College, Stan Jones, provides a perspective on all of the suffering that is unjust. He said, quote, Long ago, I read a book about suffering the author made a point that I have had to return to time and time again. He said most of our why questions about suffering are ultimately unanswerable. God does not seem to be in the business of answering the why questions and most of our philosophical responses to the question of suffering amounts to various forms of trying to take God off the hook for the problem of suffering. But this author pointed out that God doesn't seem to be interested in getting off the hook. In fact, the answer of God in Christ Jesus to the problem of suffering is not to get off the hook after all. But rather, what he does is he knows what it is like to suffer. He knows what it is like to suffer unjustly. And so, if you've ever been one who has suffered unjustly, mistreated, misjudged, Jesus knows, Jesus cares, and God calls us to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. It is Jesus who forgives those who are and have done him injustice for those who would come in repentance and faith to him. He desires to grant them eternal life. We are to be people who look to Christ as our example. We are to be people who entrust our souls to a faithful to creator and continue to do what is right. We are to understand that if anyone understands our difficulties and our sufferings, it is Jesus, and we can always go to him and find the peace and forgiveness in our hearts that he desires that we have. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word. Precious as it is. And Father, we come to you with hearts, understanding and knowing the greatness of the suffering Jesus suffered on our behalf, that we who are your children might be righteous in your sight. And Father, we pray that we might come to you with our burdens, our cares, and our concerns, especially knowing, O oh Father, that if we have been mistreated, that you, Father, would hear the cries of our heart, answering them, that our hearts would be filled with a heart of forgiveness and bring you glory and praise all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.